the doors open. A hush falls upon the crowd. Stories will be saved from the grave. Welcome to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, bringing you true tales from Sociowell's flagship live monthly show, recorded in San Diego, California at our beloved Whistle Stop Bar. A beautiful blanket of marine layer has been blowing over the Western Valleys these days, which is our version of what people call June gloom. I never cared much for that term. I find it to be unkind to the clouds, and it assumes too much. Because whatever we lose in vitamin D when the sky turns gray, and the thought of a sweater doesn't seem so absurd here in San Diego, we get back from hearing that little voice in our heads that reminds us of creative pursuits a little clearer. So roll on, Marine Lair. Roll on. It also makes it the perfect scene to debut the first full episode of the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, featuring stories from our community, and we wanted to lead with our best foot forward. So after much rumination upon our vast archive, we have determined to bring you a lovely set of stories today on the theme of red flags, interpreted in a myriad of ways over the next two episodes. And leading the pack is Jen Stiff, with a very intimate take on the theme with her story, Your Wife Has a Beautiful Pelvic Region. Here's Jen. As I lay on my back on the exam table, trembling and terrified, with my bare feet in stirrups, I felt a cold sweat drip down the back of my neck and through the thin paper sheet. I faded in and out of consciousness. I gripped the edges of the table so hard with my hands that my arms went numb. I screamed madly for the nurse to stop the procedure. And I heard that little voice inside my head, the one I disregarded for the past few weeks, say, you should have just risked having a heart attack or a stroke. A woman and her reproductive system don't share a birthday, so when a woman turns 35, her reproductive system turns 80. This is the geriatric age when birth control options dwindle. Stay on the pill, risk having a heart attack or a stroke. Use a condom, you're probably a 20-year-old living on the Jersey Shore. <laughs> Try the rhythm method, well, everyone knows what happens there. I'd been with my husband for 10 years, but we were still unsure about bringing a child into our lives. And I knew that after 18 worry-free years of being on the pill, I had to find another form of birth control. I had begun to hear a buzz about a tiny, magical plastic device you could have installed in your uterus that would create a hostile environment for sperm. So I called my best friend, Alicia, who's not only an early adopter, but who also spends an excessive amount of time on WebMD, and I solicited her advice. She told me she was getting an IUD installed the following week at Planned Parenthood, which is where all the online forums said to go, even if you have normal health insurance. We agreed that I should wait until she got her IUD, and depending on how it went, I'd decide if it was right for me. She called me a week later and said, it hurts like a bitch, and I screamed at the nurse while she was installing it. It probably feels like giving birth. But then I just took a bunch of painkillers and sat on the couch for three days watching the Kardashians. <laughs> Now I'm fine. <laughs> Alicia has an unusually high pain threshold. She once took a spontaneous trip to Belize with me five days after undergoing invasive breast surgery. So for her to say it was the most excruciating pain she'd ever felt gave me pause. 
But I was so desperate for a viable birth control option that I shoved my fears aside and made an appointment for a consultation, not at Planned Parenthood. It was more convenient for me to go to my regular OBGYN because I already had their number stored in my phone. <laughs> when the nurse practitioner peered into my cervix with her spelunking headlamp, she exclaimed, oh my goodness, that's the tiniest little cervix I've ever seen. <laughs> but don't worry, I'll get that sucker up there. <laughs> there was that sinking feeling again in the pit of my stomach. Maybe I shouldn't do this, I thought. What about that sponge thing Elaine was always talking about on Seinfeld? But I reminded myself that I was tough and that I too had a high pain threshold, having survived a sprained ankle when I was 10 years old. I scheduled my appointment for the very next morning and casually mentioned to my husband that I had solved all of our baby drama and was getting an IUD. He strongly discouraged me from doing this, though he knew nothing about the device, the procedure, or the entire female reproductive system for that matter. I once asked him what he thought PMS meant, and he said, period menstrual system? <laughs> Although his reaction was distressing, I disregarded it based on his ignorance about female anatomy. But as I stood in my room the next morning, trying to decide which panties to wear, I chose black in case of minor bleeding, I panicked, called the doctor's office, and pretended I had gotten my period so they'd have to reschedule the procedure. For the next five to seven days while I pretend menstruated, I spent every waking hour online researching IUDs. I knew the very worst thing I could do in this situation was to turn to Google for advice. But I couldn't help it. For every article I read about the advantages of the IUD, I read 10 more about the risks things like pelvic inflammatory disease, ectopic pregnancy, and in very rare instances, perforation of the uterus. I talked myself in and out of having the procedure several times every day until I convinced myself none of these dangerous, life-threatening side effects would happen to me. This is what happened in rural clinics in Kentucky and to women who don't eat at least five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. <laughs> Not to me! One week later, I got undressed from the waist down and climbed onto the cold exam table, awaiting my new sexual freedom. The first step in an IUD installation is to insert a series of rings into the cervix to stretch it out, each ring bigger than the next. There were eight rings in all. When number two barely squeezed in, I started to worry. By number four, full panic mode set in. I was moaning and sweating profusely, not something I like to do in public. And at number five, a scream escaped me that I'd never heard before and didn't know existed. Stop! Fuck this! You have to stop! I'm in too much pain! Please! Stop! I whimpered as my head writhed from side to side like a woman possessed by a demon, and tears streamed down my cheeks. And there was the nurse practitioner, calm as a Hindu cow, <laughs> acting like this was all part of the plan. In her soft, reassuring nurse voice, she tried her best to soothe me. Just another couple of minutes and we'll be done, sweetie. You're doing great. Come on now, take deep breaths. This was an obstetrics nurse, so she was used to women screaming when stuff came out of their bodies. But it didn't work in reverse. I had a choice, and I demanded that she stop. The pain was unimaginable, and I wanted to die. But she wouldn't stop and I became too weak to do anything about it. The horrific torture continued for a full 45 minutes, and then it was over. 
My uterus immediately began contracting. It took my breath away, and I stumbled out of the room, hunched over, my face contorted in pain. I'll never forget the petrified, wide-eyed stares of the girls at the front desk and the patients in the waiting room as I walked out the door. I drove to work, thinking my body just needed time to adjust to its new inhabitant. But as I walked from my car to the office, a contraction knocked me down, and I had to crawl back to my car on hands and knees. My husband brought me home, where I fell to the floor in the fetal position and thrashed around in agony for the next three days. On day three, when you're supposed to fish around in your private parts to find the strings that hang down to indicate the IUD is safe, secure, and holding down the fort, I reached into some very swollen flesh and found nothing except thick chunks of dried brown blood. I thought it must be the angle in which I was standing, so I tried a couple of other positions, just like you do when you're a teenage girl and you're trying to install a tampon for the first time. I squatted, I lifted one leg and set it on the edge of the bathtub, bent down on all fours, still nothing. When I called the doctor's office, they said, oh, don't worry, the IUD probably fell out. Or maybe we trimmed the strings a little short. Come on in and we'll find it. <laughs> the next day, I again undressed, my head pounding from the past few days of relentless pain, bleeding, and lack of sleep. I flinched when the nurse touched me, and neither her fingers nor the ultrasound machine could find anything. A real doctor was called in, and I knew I was in trouble. But he was convinced the IUD had fallen out while I was going to the bathroom. Judging by the battle that was waged getting it up there, there's no way it fell out. Furthermore, don't you think I would have noticed a T-shaped plastic device floating around in the toilet, I asked? Well, if you insist, you can go down to the lab and get an x-ray, the doctor said. I received a phone call the next day from my very uncomfortable nurse practitioner. You know when a healthcare provider calls you and before they utter a single word, they heave out a long sigh. You're about to get some shitty news. I'm so very sorry, honey, but we found the IUD and it's just outside your uterus, floating around next to your spine. As if she were telling me that today's special just had a little bit of a kick to it. You're gonna need to come in for surgery right away. Once I recovered from my panic attack a few hours later, I was relieved because I'd get to be anesthetized when that tiny beast came out of me. During my pre-op appointment, the doctor had the nerve to ask, so while I'm in there, would you like me to install another IUD? Are you joking, I asked. Anything would be better than that. An unplanned pregnancy, an abortion, never having sex again. We're just gonna pull out. Planned Parenthood's website says it's 96% effective, and they know a lot more about unplanned pregnancy than you do. The surgery went off without a hitch, and when the doctor went to talk to my family afterwards, he very cheerfully and with a perfectly straight face announced to my husband, my husband's friend, and my father, your wife has a beautiful pelvic region. Just textbook perfect. You ought to see it. About a year ago, after 20 years of trying not to have a baby, we finally felt open to the possibility of a geriatric pregnancy and come to find out we were infertile all along. The chances of us making a baby are roughly one in a thousand, the same as the chances of having an IUD perforate your uterus.
That was Jen Stiff and a ringing endorsement for Planned Parenthood, which, even if she was compensated for, which I'm sure she wasn't, it could not have been enough for the experience. Our next storyteller we're proud to introduce you to is the journalist and memoirist Jean Guerrero with her piece, VHS Vortex. Here's Jean. Papi says I was conceived on a Mexican beach called Playa La Misión. My parents took their camping gear in the summer of 1987. They pitched their tent on the marine sands, caught a squid, and cooked it over a campfire. Then they crawled into their tent and made me. That's why you're the outdoorsy one, Papi explains. Years later, I'm flipping through my mother's photo albums. I come across a picture of my mother sitting on a beach beside a large campfire. She's surrounded by darkness that emerges from the sea. The darkness has a flame-like quality of its own, leaping and slanting at my mother. I pull the picture out of its plastic covering and I turn it over. On the back, I read, Summer 1987, La Mision. I show the picture to my mother and I ask her my question. She nods. Moments after my father took this photograph, the two entered the tent behind her to mix the witch's brew of me. I search for myself in the sinister blackness lurching toward my mother from the direction of the sea. My parents met on my mother's first day in San Diego. She'd come from the island of Puerto Rico to work as a physician and got lost driving south on the Interstate 5. Suddenly, she saw a sign saying she was entering Mexico. Terrified, she swerved, barely making it onto the last U.S. exit. She pulled into a gas station and found my father there. He was tall and tan with yellow eyes and ink-black hair. My mother asked him for directions. Bobby was helping his parents establish a meat packaging business after a decade building ships. He was a self-made migrant from Mexico. Although he had no college degree, he intimidated my mother with his intelligence. He could make batteries, align brakes, fix broken pipes, start a fire from scratch. He'd amassed a collection of pliers, padlocks, screwdrivers, wrenches, and grips. He could recite the day's newspaper headlines. He retained full episodes of wildlife programming. His only perceivable faults? He smoked a pack of Marlboro Reds a day, and occasionally snorted a line of cocaine. <laughs> when my mother learned she was pregnant, she wanted to get married. Bobby didn't believe in marriage. He told her he'd stomach a wedding only if they could have it in a small rural Mexican town called Union de Guadalupe, where he had some family. They purchased plane tickets. Then, my mother got a life-changing phone call from a radiologist she'd met in medical school the radiologist confessed he was in love with her and proposed going to Vegas to get hitched. It should have ended when my mother hung up on him. But Bobby was recording my mother's phone calls. He had tapped her telephone line and, when she wasn't home, pressed play on his recording device. Today, when I asked my mother for the first clear sign of the man Bobby would become, dressing up in tin foil, traveling ar around the world fleeing alleged CIA operatives, hearing voices in his head. 
She points to this incident and cries. Bappy doesn't remember the content of the conversation he recorded. He just remembers going crazy with jealousy. He wondered if the baby in my mother's womb was even his. He followed her to work, watching her with binoculars. He paid a private investigator $2,000 to help spy on her. He took a pair of her dirty panties to a laboratory for analysis. He could never prove that she cheated on him, but, she could not shake, but he could not shake his suspicion. Why was she always putting on makeup to go to work? Why was she always coming home so late? Surely the radiologist had come. Bappi disappeared for days. When he returned, my mother felt she had no choice but to forgive his volatile behavior. She loved him, and she was pregnant. My parents traveled to the Mexican pueblo as originally planned. Roosters scattered on the unpaved streets as they walked to the church. They spoke to the priest about their wedding plans. The priest shook his head. He needed their birth certificates. My father hadn't brought his. That night, one of Papi's cousins asked him why he wanted to marry such a skinny gringa anyway. There's so many fine curvy mujeres here in El Pueblo with nice big tetas. Why don't you just go for one of them? The cousin said. My father laughed drunkenly. He never brought up the subject of marriage again. Back in San Diego, Papi purchased a bulky Panasonic camcorder and began to film my budding existence. He was obsessed with recording everything. He zoomed in on my mother's bulging belly, on sunsets, on crows eating breadcrumbs from his hands. Today, decades after his breakdown, I search his boxes of VHS tapes for clues of the cause of his coming collapse. Was it truly biological, as my mother says? Or did the CIA really implant a microchip in his brain, as Poppy has so long tried to convince me? Sometimes I toy with the idea of my father as a misguided prophet. Perhaps Poppy inherited psychic sensitivity to supernatural stimuli from his great-grandmother, a clairvoyant witch from Zacatecas who communed with spirits. His homemade videos are filled with vague prophecies. One of the earlier tapes shows my grandmother teaching my pregnant mother how to cook tortilla soup in her ocean view kitchen. Now I'll make it for you, my mother says to the camera. Silence. I'm going to make it for you, she repeats with a giggle, winking at my father. Sunday. You'll see. My father turns the camera toward his reflection in the window against the nighttime landscape of San Diego. His body merges with the light particles and the darkness extending to the sea. Papi filmed my birth. He followed the nurse closely with his camcorder, paranoid she would switch me up with some other baby. I was pale and green-eyed, but from the moment I was born, he knew I was his. My left ear had an elfin protrusion at the tip like his own. My father made it his mission to catch every milestone on film. My first bath, my first word, my first watermelon. He zoomed in on my strange elfin ear. He filmed himself repeatedly dunking me in a hot tub, delighted by my lack of fear. He, f he filmed himself tossing me several feet over his head. He took pictures of me, balanced perilously on the ledge of a second floor balcony. 
he wanted to immortalize even the most banal moments of my life. I suppose it's no surprise that destiny would have me do the same for him. In the future, I would become a writer. My first book would document his every damning deed, his every act of redemption. I had inherited from my father more than he could have known. I had inherited his, his consuming compulsion to chronicle. Bappy came home from the meat packaging plant one evening, panting, pacing. What's wrong, my mother asked. Bappy explained that his father had, ex had kicked him, his family had kicked him out of the business. It didn't matter that he'd built it. His stepfather wanted his biological daughter at the helm. Bappy plunged into a deep depression. He started sleeping in a separate room. He stayed out until early morning hours. One day, he called my mother at work to tell her she should get checked for gonorrhea. Bobby was sleeping with prostitutes. The confirmation of his betrayal felt like cancer in her body, but she could not crawl into a corner to mend her wounds. She had to keep working to support me. As if to atone for his sins, Bobby toiled in the backyard for days. He built a cage for chickens and a wooden shed for compost. He stacked wooden logs within which to plant strawberries, potatoes, frijoles. He created, he created a towering wire mesh trellis for tomatoes. The backyard became a labyrinth of crops and cultivating machines. Sweating, back bent over the earth, sawing and sewing and shoveling. Papi was building my mother her very own Garden of Eden. Among Papi's VHS tapes, I find a video of a garter snake devouring a mouse in an empty fish tank. It's eating it now, Papi says with enthusiasm. The snake massages the head of the mouse with its lips as it gulps it down. At the end of Papi's footage, scenes from a nature show he'd previously taped take over. Their flowering will be brief, says a male narrator of the Sturt's Pea Desert Flower and in their urgent need to attract pollinators, they provide copious nectar. <laughs> For some reason, I feel my father is trying to tell me something through these videos, that he has structured them precisely as they are for a purpose, that he has filled them with symbols I must decipher. But I find only foreshadowing and forecasts, more futile prophecies. In one video, Bobby sets his camcorder on the tripod and sits down next to my mother, who's holding my newborn sister on the couch. Okay, I have to go now, he says. He disappears from the shot as if by magic, experimenting with the pause button on his camcorder's remote control. Suddenly, he rematerializes on the couch. Oops, I forgot something, he says. He sits there smiling mischievously. Okay, now I'm really leaving, he says. He snaps his fingers and vanishes again, leaving my smiling mother alone on the couch with the baby. Eventually, my mother kicked Bobby out of the house. Too many strange, frightening things were happening to us. Consecutive cars were stolen from her driveway. One was found on a horse trail, stripped of everything except a crumpled photo of me and my sister that had been burnt around the edges. We noticed strangers following us, watching us. My mother figured Bobby owed someone drug money. 
Bobby, meanwhile, had become convinced he was the subject of a covert CIA mind control experiment. He tore his new condominium apart, looking for hidden cameras and microphones, certain he was the one being recorded now. And then, as he had prophesied in his videotape, he disappeared. He simply vanished from the face of the earth. How strange and horrible that when he rematerialized four years later and shared his stories with his daughter, he would discover a new demon. I had inherited his obsession to record. I had chosen to make him my subject. Jean Guerrero, she's a columnist now at the LA Times and the author of two books, Hate Monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda and Crux, a cross-border memoir. That's the first half of Red Flags. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't already so you don't miss part two when it drops. It's every bit as good as what you've heard today. And if you want to learn more about So Say We All, including our live shows, the fine reading our small press publishes, and our other podcasts, pop over to our website, www.sosayweallonline.com. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnell. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prevost Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We'd love to have you as one of those supporting members, which can be accomplished by your going over to sosayweall.wildapricot.org. Or you can find our Patreon. We'll see you back in a minute for Red Flags Part 2. Do be well, don't be a stranger, and keep listening. <laughs>